0: I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Arcadia. Good morning. Happy, Easter. Happy Easter. All right, how you doing? <clears throat> my name is Frank, if you're new here. Uh, a couple things before we get uh, started. Uh, first of all, I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, Tom Schrader last week, uh, uh, coming in and preaching uh, here last week. Uh, I so appreciate his ministry and who he is. And um, in my book, he's he's really the best teacher of God's Word that I've ever run across. Um, There you go. I I agree with that. Um, And and I wish that he could be available more often. He's one of the founding pastors of Redemption Church, um, but really has been my spiritual father in my walk with Christ. I came to Christ uh, 28 years ago, 29 years ago, and met Tom about 26 years ago, and he's been just instrumental uh, in my life and really appreciate him. Uh, coming. It was a little bit awkward, I understand, though. He didn't really have an introduction. And so when he walked up onto the platform, uh, there were some people that told me they were concerned about what was going on. In the first service, there's a guy named Jeffrey who's uh, the only way to describe Jeffrey is he is quite the physical specimen. He's about 6'3, 225, and it's all in the right places, if you know what I mean. <clears throat> and uh, Jeffrey was sitting in the front, and, and when Tom came up to the platform, he had this thought process in his mind. Where's Pastor Frank? Who is that guy? I better tackle him before he takes over the platform. But Tom said it's a good thing for him that he didn't tackle me because, you know. Anyway, uh, it was great to have him here and just appreciate. I got a lot of feedback that was very positive about him being here. Uh, the other thing, two other things I just want to mention quickly, uh, If you weren't here Friday night, um, I I don't want to say, ha, you should have been here. I just, if you were here Friday night, just understand, um, I I want to thank Cody Kimmel and Maria Baer and Rick Umbel. Rick is the uh, worship pastor from Scottsdale Redemption. They kind of combined forces and did a, a good Friday service here. It was easily the most powerful and meaningful service I've ever been to in my life. It was absolutely fantastic, and I just want to acknowledge all the hard work that the three of them and the rest of the musicians and the readers put into that. There were musicians and readers, but the three of them really led that. And I just want to acknowledge that, uh, the wonderful job that they did. Yeah, ab- absolutely. <clears throat> and then the last thing, I, I debated about saying anything about this, but finally decided I couldn't help but say anything. I, I just, um, a little, it was a little over four years ago that I came to Redemption Arcadia. And, uh, you know, transition is always hard, and and, um, I knew right away that uh, Jackie and I had made the right decision by coming, but um, I just just want you to know that over the four years and then over this last week, uh, this community is really significant, and and this community is really, really special. Uh, Some of you know, many more of you don't know, but um, uh, my father-in-law, Jackie's father, who had been living with us for the last three years, he passed away on Tuesday morning, um, he kind of went into his death spiral uh, Monday night, and uh, Jackie and Renee, his two daughters, were able to be with him through Monday night, and then the three of us were with him Tuesday morning when he passed away. And just the uh, outpouring from all of you, people I, some people I don't even know personally, uh, just the, the cards, the texts, the emails, uh, the way y- you cared for our family during this time, was really significant. Um, a lot of food was brought over. Thank you for the food. I like the food. That was pretty cool. But <clears throat> um, I just want to let you know, this is a great community. It really is. And we, Jackie and I and our daughters, have been firsthand recipients of, of what a great community this is. So I wanted to mention that and thank you for that. Um, let me transition now into Matthew 28. That's what we're going to look at today. And uh, really, you could, do, you could do several weeks on Matthew 28. I'm going to try and sum it up in 25 or 30 minutes. Uh, But the one thing that I want to focus in on is this literary technique that that Matthew uses in telling the the story of Matthew chapter 28. There's a a literary technique that academically is known as inclusio. Inclusio. Uh, Our pastor at, at Redemption Gateway, Luke Simmons, Uh, has another name for it. He says it's an easier name to understand. He calls it a literary sandwich. It's when uh, two things on the outside of a text surround the thing in the middle, and the purpose of, of doing this is in order to compare and contrast and illustrate and give an example of the thing in the middle and to make sure that everybody understands that there's a difference here. And this literary technique of inclusio was especially important 2100 years ago in the first century when the only mode of media that people had back then was either the spoken word or the written word, but primarily the spoken word. And so they used literary techniques like this quite often in order to aid in memory and aid in learning. It helps people to learn, and it helps people to remember. Uh, last year, 2015, when we walked through the gospel of Mark verse by verse, if you remember, we saw a lot of inclusio in, in, in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Luke, like I said, out in Gateway, he called it the Markin sandwich. There must have been Fifteen or twenty different times where Mark would illustrate something in his text, in his gospel, with this, this inclusio, where something in the middle was helping to define the things on the outside, or the things on the outside was helping to define uh, the, what's in the middle. In the English translation of the Greek text in Matthew 28, it's helpful, I think, that the translation shows that there are three different paragraphs because that frames this inclusio that we find in, Mark 20, in Matthew 28 perfectly. I'm going to reread through it again, and if you don't quite pick up on what it is, don't worry. Towards the end of the message, we're going to come and really drill down very hard on the inclusio, but we're going to give you hints in the process as we go through this text. So let me reread Matthew 28. I know Chad just read it, but it's always good to read God's Word again and again and again. Now, after the Sabbath, that would be after Saturday because that was their Sabbath, the resurrection took place on a Sunday, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled. These are Roman guards who have seen it all. They trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. That's the name of the message today. As he said. I think those are three absolutely critical words in this text today. He says, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they, the two Marys, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. We're going to talk a lot about those two um, Emotions being mixed together there, with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, "Greetings." Now some of you, it just seems a little formal for the context here, isn't it? I mean, I just feel like he should. Hey, ladies, what's up? How you doing? Que pasa? You know, in the, 60, in the 70s, sorry, in the 70s, we would have said something like, hey, give me some skin, man. What's up? How you doing? It just seems a little bit formal, but, you know, Jesus is there, and he's giving them a little special sighting, I think. This is very special here, that he would meet them on the way, sort of confirm their mission from the angel of the Lord. So he says, greetings, and they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. So he senses also there's some fear there. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And the scene changes. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, the Roman guard, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble because that could have gotten these guards into significant trouble, like life-ending trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And then a shift in scene again for the last paragraph. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee He said, if you didn't quite catch it, don't worry, we'll come back to it. Let me just sort of spend some time teaching on and unpacking these three paragraphs. Really, primarily, the the first one is the biggest one verses 1 through 10. This is the resurrection. And understand, uh, a lot of people want to know how the resurrection happened, they want an explanation of how this could happen. There really isn't anything in Scripture that tells us how this this happened, and and this passage here is is the same. It doesn't tell us how the resurrection happened, but rather it tells us how the resurrection was discovered. That's the important thing, is how it was discovered. These two Marys who had been uh, with Jesus the whole time during his ministry, they go to the tomb because it was tradition back then in the first century to go to the tomb, to the burial place of a loved one, for several days, even several weeks after the death of the loved one, they would go every single day. In this case, they went to a tomb because that's where Jesus was buried. He was given a royal burial in a tomb. Uh, other times, people would be buried in, a, in what's known as a bone box or a sarcophagus. And so you would go to the sarcophagus and, and, and pay your respects there. Uh, most of the time, in the first century, you were buried in a very shallow grave. There was no money to bury you with, so you were just sort of thrown into a ditch and a few chunks of dirt and clods were thrown on top of you, and that would be your burial place. That would be the primary burial place for most people in the first century. But regardless of where it was, it was customary tradition to go and pay your respects, and, and this would also help you in the grieving process. And so the Marys were in the process of, of doing that. But what's significant here? And I know <clears throat> some of you know this and have heard this time and time again. Well, that's okay, because whoever hasn't heard this needs to hear this for the first time. This is really significant. This is important. It's significant that women are the first witnesses to the body that is not there. It's significant that specifically it was two women who saw this first and two women who were going to be the first ones to start telling people about the resurrection. You know, Jesus ministered to women in the first century in a way that women had never been ministered to before by professional religious people. And by the way, Jesus wasn't necessarily a professional religious person, but they thought of him that way. They called him rabbi. Nevertheless, he ministered to and served women the way no other religious person had ever ministered to and served women in the first century. He showed them levels of respect that rarely, if ever, were afforded to women in the first century. In that culture, from Rome all the way around the Fertile Crescent into northern Africa and all the way to the east, to Persia, women were considered second-class citizens. And in fact, women were not even allowed to testify in legal proceedings Their witness, their testimony, their experience, their assertion of anything was always considered unreliable. Now, you may may ask, well, why? Why would that be? Aren't they human beings? Yes, they are, but they were still considered unreliable, and the reason is this simple. It's because they were women, and that was the male view of women in the time, and it was the prevailing view, not just the prevailing view, but it was the only view that was acceptable at the time. And yet Jesus ministered to these women. He gave voice to these women. He treated them with a level of respect they had never had before, especially the ones that knew they were sinners because Jesus is the answer for every sin. It's like Jesus actually takes seriously the creation account The created order in Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let's create man after our image and in our likeness. And so God created man. And he created them what? Male and female. Well, Jesus is the creator. He's God. He's savior. He's deliverer. So of course, he's going to look at the very ones that he created in his image, and he's going to treat them the way they deserve to be treated. But this is also significant because you need to realize that because a woman's testimony, a woman's experience, a woman's ex- assertion was completely unreliable, if this resurrection thing didn't happen, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to shut down. They could have put an the, the Roman government and the Jewish religious professionals, they could have put an end to this thing in less than five minutes if it really weren't True because it was initially witnessed by women. And I know, I know some of you who are hearing this for the first time and and don't believe in Jesus, even this, which I think is somewhat compelling, even this you might hear and go, well, so what? No big deal. Listen, I understand that. That's fine. I, I went the first 28 years of my life without Jesus going, so what? Big deal. Okay? I understand that. It's not my job to persuade you. That's the good news for me. If it was up to me to persuade people about the reality of Jesus, the reality of the resurrection, and the reality of God, this church would have exactly zero people in it. Because it's all God's work. It is the Holy Spirit's job to move and change your heart. The Holy Spirit calls me to present the text, and I'm going to do that the best way I know how. But I know for a fact that I haven't got any kind of game that is good enough to convince you of this, only God can do that. And I know that for a fact because the scriptures tell us so, and I know it for a fact because that's what I experienced. My wife will tell you, if there was anybody who was far from God in this world, it was Frank and maybe Charles Manson, but Frank certainly. (laughs) And God did this incredible work in my life. He took a heart of stone and he changed it. So I'm called to present the text, and I'm happy to do that. But the Holy Spirit will change your heart. Submit yourself to him. Anyway, there's this stone in front of the tomb. Uh, Historians in that day wrote about these stones. So we have firsthand witnesses of these stones, and also archaeologists have, have uncovered things and, and other people have studied this. And we know for a fact that these stones that would cover these tombs in those days in that area of the world generally weighed between three and 4,000 pounds. They were really heavy. And the point of that was because they didn't want any one human being to be able to move this stone. So no man or woman without a Dodge Ram truck could move this stone. It took several men with tools of leverage to be able to move this stone away. And so this is really significant. It was an angel of the Lord who came down from heaven who moved this stone away. And I would submit to you that even the angel of the Lord using divine power strained to move this stone. I think he pulled a hammy and that's why he's sitting on top of the stone and not standing. Now I know that's an addition to the text that isn't there but it's just my assumption. But here's what we need to understand. Again, so many know that there's this miracle of this stone being moved away, but we believe that the reason the stone was moved away was so that Jesus could get out. So the Creator God of the universe is standing behind the stone, going, "Well, I hope the angel of the Lord comes down. I'm not getting out." No, He's God. It's not the stone wasn't moved away to let Jesus out. The stone was moved away so that these women could go in and see for themselves. It's true. The body's not there. He's gone. And I think it's significant to understand that when this happened, the Roman guards, who'd seen everything, they bolted. They got afraid and they bolted. There's some symbolism here, too, that I, I think we should see. Earthquakes were often a type of announcement that some truly epic God event was taking place. I would suggest that resurrection would fit into that category of a truly epic God event. And the, angel, the angel's appearance, like lightning and clothing as white as snow, that's symbolic of the holiness and grace, and purity of God. God is holy, and he's perfect. But even more than that, with God, through the life, death, and resurrection, the crucifixion, and the fact that Jesus is still alive, you and I are made that pure, that clean, that holy, that righteous, that justified. You and I inherit as a gift that purity because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus took our stained and tattered rags to the cross with him and got what we deserved. And he exchanged that and gave us what he deserved. He gave us his righteousness and his justification. Like I said, the Roman guards had never seen anything like this before. And they'd seen everything. They'd seen war like Nobody's ever seen war before, and yet this frightened them. The angel slays them. So then the angel speaks to the women. What does he say? He says, you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Jesus told you repeatedly that this was going to happen. You know he did that. But none of you believed it. Most of you, when you heard Jesus saying this, you either thought he was out of his mind, or you just skipped over it because you didn't want to deal with it. Well, guess what? It's true. And he says in verses 5 and 6, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not there, for he is risen as he said. As he said, ladies. You heard him say it. As he said. And there's our first indication of what the inclusio is really all about in Matthew 28. The Gospel of Mark records three different times in chapters 8 through 10 that Jesus very directly told this to his disciples that this would happen. And he didn't say it in passing. Read the text. It's as though he was talking to junior hires and he was saying, okay, look up here. I want your attention. Come on, look up here. What I'm about to say is really important. He squared him up and he said, listen, what's going to happen is I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. He said, he's nuts. Or they just ignored it. Matthew also records it, chapter 26, verses 30 through 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. After I've been raised, I'm going to go to Galilee. Doesn't that sound familiar? And Peter answered him, Though they will all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I, I know that this is just an implication from the text, and I can't tell you that this is absolutely factual. But I also feel like I know Peter pretty well because I am a Peter like that. You know, I just, I'm a guy that wants to talk when I'm nervous and and I'm always saying the wrong thing and opening my mouth when I shouldn't open my mouth. Just ask my wife. I'm exactly like Peter. And so I think the insight here is he heard I'm going to be raised, and I will see you in Galilee. He's like, there he goes saying that crazy stuff again. I need to talk about this other thing to get everybody's mind off that. We don't want anybody to think he's crazy. He purposely denies it and distracts by bringing up this whole denial thing. I'll go with you. I'll die with you. It's no big deal. I'm there. He just skips over it like Jesus didn't even say it. Now, here's where I think I'm a little bit different than Peter. I think if I had heard that, I would have said, Okay, wait a minute, go back up. You need to explain, raised? What are you talking about? Can you please explain that to me a little bit more? Because it doesn't sound like you're talking about the last mass resurrection. It sounds like you're talking about you individually very soon because you said you're going to go into Galilee. Peter just skips over it. And now the Marys find out it's true, and they're running to tell Peter and John and the rest. The angel says, run along now. You need to go and tell the others. And the text says that the women were afraid, yet filled with joy. This is a clause in the New Testament that you find in a couple of different places, including here. And I've always dwelled on this statement. I've spent a lot of time looking at this because I wonder, how do you have fear and joy at the same time? What does that mean? What does that look like? And I would argue that really, in the end, it's a tremendous statement of faith. There's all kinds of reasons why the women should be afraid in in the wake of this resurrection. And and I'll start to outline a few of them for you. Certainly, there would be fear there. And I don't want you, the reason I want to stop and dwell on this is because I don't want you to miss the humanity of this. So often we read about this and go, Yay, Jesus is raised. And we don't think about the humanity of actually being there when the body's not there. That's goofy. Imagine going to a funeral where the person hasn't been cremated. And there's a casket up in the front. And you know, I'm a pastor, I know all about this stuff. So before the funeral starts, they always have the casket open and you can walk by and view. And then when the memorial service starts, they close the casket. Yesterday, uh, my family and I went to a funeral for a woman that we've known for years. She died way too early. She was 52 years old. She died of cancer after a 20 year fight with cancer. It was a magnificent memorial service. More than 500 people showed up. This huge funeral home had never seen anything like it. They all they did all they wanted to talk about was how they'd never had anybody that many people here for a funeral. It was magnificent. What would have been like though if as they were getting ready to start the funeral, they rolled the casket and they opened it up and Colleen's body wasn't there. I think at least the guys that work at the funeral home would have been afraid. And I think her husband would have been afraid, and her daughter and her son who were there, they would have been afraid too. That's not supposed to happen. You don't just misplace a body, even then. Here's another way of looking at it. When something's out of place or something's missing that shouldn't be there, it causes anxiety and fear. I've been robbed twice in my life. One time when I was 17 years old, I was robbed at gunpoint. I was held at gunpoint for 30 minutes in my home while these guys looted the house. The other time was right after Jackie and I got married. We were out one night, and we came home, and we opened the front door, and as we walked in, we looked around, and within two or three seconds, we knew that something was wrong because things were missing and other things were out of place. It did not inspire joy in us. It created anxiety and fear. And part of the fear, of course, was maybe they're still there. We don't know. But it's frightening when things are not where they're supposed to be. But maybe they're frightened also because they're beginning to recount what Jesus had said all along. That would cause fear too. They're saying, oh my goodness, he he wasn't crazy and he wasn't kidding around this resurrection thing has really happened. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. He wasn't thinking about it in the by and by. It has happened. And then they have to begin to wrestle with the fear that they didn't believe the one who is now obviously the creator God of this universe. They didn't believe him. And Jesus is going to have the best I told you so party ever. They have to wrestle with that. But here's, Here's, I think, the greatest fear that they were wrestling with. They knew their lives would never be the same. The reality of the resurrection impressed upon them, your lives have changed existentially, circumstantially, and substantially in ways that they will never change back now because of this event, because of this resurrection. Everything has been turned upside down. You know, the professional religious people, And the Roman administrators, they were so excited when they crucified Jesus. This guy who was a threat to the status quo, a threat to their power, a threat to their way of life, they couldn't wait to get him on that cross and shut him up so that they could just say, okay, we're done with that, let's move on with our life. Now they got a problem. This is a disaster for them. And even I would say the disciples... There's a sense in which the disciples, even though they followed him around, many fell away. You realize in Scripture we read how many of them would fall away during his actual earthly ministry. Why? Because he was saying some hard things. And they were attracting some unwanted attention from people in the culture. And they were already being marginalized. They were already being accused. And so now... Even though they really loved Jesus, there had to be something in their humanity that was saying, well, he's dead and gone now. I don't have to worry about that anymore. But he's back. And now they know their lives are going to change. They have to proclaim this truth. How could they not? And when they go out and they start proclaiming this truth, some of you know that. You go and tell people about Jesus who is risen, and they look at you like they never want to talk to you again. You know what this is life. Your life is changed when you embrace the resurrected Christ. This truth, back then as it is today, is seen as a threat to the status quo. And that changes lives. They are going to have to live with persecution the way Christians today live with persecution. It's going to inspire fear in anyone. But you know there's also joy. He's really alive. They had to be sitting there going, oh man, we got to tell people about this, but it's true. We win. (laughs) There's joy. He is everything he said he was. There is not one thing that he said that we can point to and say that wasn't accurate. Is there anybody in your life you can say that about? Only Jesus. He's the only one who has ever said everything about himself, and it is true. And there's victory. There's victory over Satan, sin, and death. And now they have to look at him and realize he does have all authority. You know why? Because as Colossians tells us, he's the creator. He's God. He's the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the sustainer. He made it all, and he's going to reign over it all. And he's going to usher in the new Jerusalem someday. And on their way, they're they're rewarded, I think, a little bit for their faithfulness that they're going to go. Jesus makes sure that before they actually go and tell the disciples that he appears to them. Hey, here I am. Greetings. (laughs) And they bow down and they grab his feet and they worship. It's real. He's alive. Then we get to that middle paragraph, verses 11 through 15. This is a problem. For the Romans, for the Jewish religious leaders, this is a disaster. And so they manufacture a story. They tell the guards, they say, all right, here's what we want you to do. We're going to give you a significant amount of money to go and lie to everybody. And it's going to put your life in danger because Roman guards are not supposed to fall asleep when they're guarding a body. In fact, they don't. And the reason is because if they fall asleep... They could be killed. That's their sentence. They take the place of the dead body. That's the way it worked. And so they had to give them a lot of money. And then they said, We've got your back in case the Roman governor decides he wants to do something about you. And they said, Okay, we'll help you tell this story. And their story was told for years, and I would argue that it's still told today, or some version of it. Some version of Jesus isn't real and the resurrection isn't real is told today with as much fervor as it was told back then. But here we are, 2,100 years later. What are we doing here? There's power in the resurrection. That's what we're doing here. There's got to be something to this. And Think of all the people who live this out. 20, think, 2,100 years later, the way people who believe in Jesus live this out in their life. The way so many Christians serve and love others in their community. Why? Because he's alive. The way so many Christians take seriously when Jesus says, you are to care for the least of these, the under-resourced, the marginalized, those who can't help themselves, widows and orphans, people who are in prison, You are to care for the least of these. And the way Christians go, whether their church does it or not, the way Christians go and care for the least of these. Why? Because he's alive. The way people look at a place like Africa where there's so few resources in many places and so much oppression, where places in Africa don't even have clean water, and so Christians go at great sacrifice and great expense, And they go and they devise ways of bringing clean water and some measure of nutrition and and schools and hospitals and whatever it takes into these communities in Africa. Why? Because he's alive. I remember, I thought people were nuts. And I'm a Christian and a pastor. I thought people were nuts when Katrina hit. I can't believe how many of my friends who know Christ just told their employers, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks, too bad, loaded up their car, loaded up their truck with tools and resources and and water and drove to New Orleans just because they wanted to help. Why? Because he's alive. The testimony that he's alive goes over and over. Isn't this an odd thing to give your life to if it isn't true? Let me just speak personally now, okay? Let me tell you, that I'm a pastor, Okay, I hope you understand, I'm not doing this because the pay is off the chart, the hours are light, people are easy, and I get really good parking at hospitals and funeral homes. I'm doing it because I get to hang out with Cody Kimmel. Just kidding. I gave my life to this, and I'm not saying you need to also, God opened doors, but I gave my life to this because of the radical change in my life. I grew up no church, no Jesus, no nothing. And when God invaded my life and changed my heart against my will and made me see the truth and reality of this, and helped me to understand that I could be forgiven and reconciled to God through his son, who went and paid the price that I can't pay. I said, I gotta give my life to this. It's worth it. It's unbelievable. There has got to be something to this. Then those last five verses, Jesus is back with his crew, as he said, before he ascends to heaven. And if you want to read about the ascension to heaven, you can just read Acts chapter 1. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's implied in the text, but I'm sure they picked it up. He's saying, hey, man, I was dead and now I'm alive that gives me authority amen and his disciples are like you got it boss amen he has all authority he he wasn't just dead you understand he was dead and now he's alive and that gives him the authority to give them a mission he says my earthly mission is over i've done what i came to do i exchange my perfection For your sin, so that you could stand before God justified and be reconciled to Him. My part of the mission is over. Now, here's your mission your mission is to go and tell people about me. Your mission is to go under my love, my wisdom, my guidance my power, and my authority, all of which is being given to you now, and I will be with you every single step of the way, but I'm calling you to do the work of the church now. I'm calling you to do the work of my body. I am calling you to be my ambassadors to a lost and dying world that needs me desperately. Here's your mission. Tell people about me. Explain life and death. Explain sin and redemption. Explain new creation and purpose and the fact that the new Jerusalem is coming. Explain and tell God's salvation story. From beginning to end, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Tell the whole story and tell them about me. Teach people these things because I love people and I want them to be saved and I want them to have new life. I want you to be my church. I want you to be my body. I want you to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me and love and serve others. And he says, I'll be with you every step of the way. And so there's the sandwich. There's the inclusio. That first paragraph, those first 10 verses, the angel says, he's not here for he is risen as I said. He says, now go and tell the disciples. You go and tell them because I have told you. Listen to how many times the verb tell or told is used in this first paragraph. And so, with great fear and joy, the women went to tell the brothers. And then Jesus greets them and he reminds them now you go and tell my brothers. Tell, told, tell, told. And then what happens in that middle paragraph? There's another story that's being told. And they go to the, the Roman garden, they say, Take this money and go and tell the people this story. And that story has been told. Ever since. Uh, the second c- century church father, more than 100 years after this happened, writes, his name is Justin, he writes that this story is still being told today. It was being told 100 years later, and some former version of it is still told today. But then, the last paragraph, verses 16 through 20, there's the call, once again, to tell people about Jesus. Here's your mission. Here's your purpose. Be my ambassadors. Go and tell people about them. Teaching them everything that I've commanded you. And baptizing them. We've already had one bapti- baptism this morning. We're going to have another one. Baptizing them. Be the church, and I'm going to be with you as you do that. Proclaim the good news. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing, and that by hearing the word of God, by hearing God's salvation story. We are human beings. We love stories. Amen? And we're story-making machines, aren't we? Think about how much story surrounds everything that we do. We love story. We love to hear stories. We love to tell stories. We love to make up stories. We love to write stories. We love to receive stories. And just about everything we do, it seems, really is a story in the making. You, You know that sermonizing what I do on Sunday morning. Sermons, that's a form of storytelling. Do you know that? It's just a form of storytelling. Books. Uh, Some people, like from my generation, we still like to read books. (laughs) Books that you actually hold in your hand. I I read two more of this last week. I read a James Patterson novel. I like any James Patterson fans. Pastor, you shouldn't. I read a, also read a book by Michael Walsh, really interesting uh, book, not a, not a non fic I'm sorry, not a fiction book, not a, not a n- novel like James Patterson, but a non-fiction book, some heavy stuff. The thing that these two stories and these two authors had in common, uh, these two books and these two authors had in hom- uh, common is that they were both telling a story. They both wanted to explain something through story. How many of you have kids? Mom, Dad, read me a story. Love story. Movies tell stories. Some of you know how much I love movies. Movies tell stories. Music. Possibly the most powerful storytelling mechanism in our culture, music. Whether it's a symphony or a pop song. Friday night, the way uh, Cody was able to tell the story of the crucifixion through music was amazing. It was so moving. It was way more powerful than anything I could have ever said. Music tells stories. Lawyers know how to tell stories. Commercials on television. You understand that every commercial on television is a little story? 30-second story, it's a minute long if they want to pay the extra. But think about that. Every commercial we watch, it's a story. And what are the stories telling us? Well, you're too fat. You're not invested in the right financial funds. Your food isn't tasty enough. Your insurance is all wrong or you're paying too much for your insurance. One of the greatest storytellers alive is a woman named Flo. She tells stories, man. And I like her stories. I don't have progressive insurance, but I like her stories. She's, it's like a 30-second vacation to listen to her stories, man, I'm telling you. Bernie Madoff told a story, almost got away with $50 billion. Hitler told a story. We tell stories. We like stories. The truth is, Matthew 28 helps us to understand that ultimately, crucially, really, there are only two stories. There's a story of God's salvation history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the story of the redemption through the resurrection. And there's everything else. Everything else that the world offers us. And hear me when I say this. I'm not saying that those other stories are necessarily bad. There are certainly some bad ones in there. But they're not all bad. There's good stories in there. Like I said, I love books. I love music. I love movies. There are some good stories there. There are some stories of redemption there. Here's the problem. It's not a question of whether they're good or bad stories. The question is, which is the ultimate story, which is the best story, which is the story of eternal truth, and it's God's salvation story through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the most important story, and here's why. Jesus comes and he says, here's the story of God's redemption, and what do you get with my story? He says, you get me. No other story says that. Stories make us feel good, stories inspire us, stories make us see things in different ways, stories help us to understand the world, but they don't give us God. Jesus' story gives us him. He says, here's my story and here's what you get with my story, you get me. I'll be with you till the end of the age, I'm your savior and your redeemer and you can count on me. Everything else is just something the world is trying to sell us. And Paul even says in Romans chapter 1 that the fallen human proclivity is to hear these other stories and like them so much that we're willing to suppress the truth of the gospel in order to try to live out those stories. But ultimately, those stories will not save us. There are two stories Jesus and the rest of the world. And the question is, which one are you going to embrace? Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son, your resurrection, and that you love us enough to confront us right where we are and tell us that you love us the way we are, but you also love us enough to take us somewhere else, to take us to a better place, to transform our lives, to bring about a metamorphosis in our life that can only be by the power of of your Holy Spirit and your resurrected Son, and we thank you for that. Lord God, we thank you that you have promised that you will never leave us or forsake us, that our lives will be turned not upside down but right side up when you invade our lives. And so, God, we call upon you. We open our hearts to you. We open our minds, our ears, and our eyes to you. We want to know you. We want to know your truth. We want to know your salvation. God, save us from our sin. Save us, save us from the recklessness that comes that thinking that we're God and you're not. And I pray that you do that for us all, every one of us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.